Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our elder brother, sovereign of the universe. How all those things come together, we cannot comprehend, but we're grateful that this is true. And Father, we ask for your blessing upon us today. We're thankful that you are true to your people, that you care for us beyond our ability even to comprehend, and that even this morning as we're gathered here, you're in our midst because where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are. And so we trust you to open our eyes, to give us attention to what you're saying. I pray that you'll protect us from any assault of the evil one and bring about your sovereign purpose in each of our lives. And Father, as the word is ministered throughout our Sunday school this morning, we trust you to be in every class, be with every teacher, every student, and uh, accomplish your will, we ask. And we ask also for the service which is going on at this time, that you'll be very present there. We're just thankful that we can know that you're able to do all these things above beyond that we could ever ask and think. And so we commit ourselves to you for this hour in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Exodus uh, chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Exodus 3:16. This, of course, is God speaking to Moses, uh, the ongoing account that we've been studying at the burning bush. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, I said that already, the Hittite, <laughs> should have been Hittite the first time, and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to what you say. And you, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Again, wherever you see the Lord with a capital, it's generally Yahweh and God is Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush isn't quite as long as it's becoming for us here, uh, several weeks. It was obviously a matter of probably less than an hour that God met with Moses there in this wilderness of the Sinai. God has expressed to Moses in response to Moses' question who he is. I am that I am. And we went into a little bit of detail about what that means. 
This, of course, has uh, brought a great deal of understanding about God to Moses, but not yet enough, as we see, we'll see as we proceed along here. Uh, God has instructed Moses. He has really given him all he needs to know to do his task. And he's commanded him to go. He says here, go to the elders of Israel and give them this message that I have given to you. You've just received it. You know what it is. Take it to the elders of Israel. Now, it was a positive message. So it wasn't like Moses had to be in a position like Jeremiah was later or one of the other prophets who was going to pronounce doom. He had a positive message to take, a message of deliverance. God is going to bring you up out of this land of affliction and bring you to the land of promise. The slavery, the oppression that these people had been experiencing for lo these several hundred years was about to end. So, I mean, it had to be a joyous message, a positive message to bring to the people of Israel. And that they were going to be returning to the promised land. Now, returning in the sense of Israel as a people, not for them individually, because none of them had ever been to, to, his, to the promised land, as far as we know. They were all slaves in Egypt. They had been slaves for generations. They simply knew of the promised land by tradition, by the oral tradition passed down from generation to generation. They knew of the land in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived and which God had promised, but they had not known it experientially. Now, as we think of what God is saying to Moses here and what God is commanding Moses to do, it's amazing how many parallels there are between Moses' job and, and our job today. God had given to Moses a message, and God had given to Moses a commission to deliver that message. And God has given to us a message, too. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has given to us a commission. We know it summed up in what's called the Great Commission. We've looked at it many times. Uh, you have, certainly. But I'd like to turn to it again just for a moment in the 28th chapter of Matthew. It, it's really no different than the commission God gave to Moses. It was a commission to deliver a message of freedom. And that's the message that we have been given to deliver. The problem is, most people don't know they are in bondage, as Israel certainly did know. But as you also know from your other studies of this uh, event, as it stretched out into the next 40 years, that the people of Israel came to the place where they didn't consider their bondage so bad as compared to wandering around in the wilderness. So in some way, they didn't really understand their slavery either. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But notice, some were doubtful. You know, we have to really uh, be careful that we aren't too hard on young believers because young believers are not all going to have rock-solid faith that people who have walked with the Lord a long time should have. Some were doubtful. No, I mean, Jesus has been crucified. He has been resurrected. He's appeared to the disciples. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now we could say, but that commission was given to the eleven. And, and therefore, you know, what does it mean to us? Well, obviously, it was transferred through, to, through the eleventh to the church as it uh, developed through the centuries and to us 2,000 years later. It is called the Great Commission. And certainly there is no greater commission that man has ever been given by God than to carry the gospel to the world. There have been some who have attended Alliance churches who have not understood the history of the Alliance and therefore have not understood the role world missions has played. We've had some even in this class uh, who have said, not anybody in this room right now, but who have said to us, uh, why should we bother with world missions? We got a mission field right here in Reading. Let's just deal with that. We shouldn't be worried about the rest of it. Well, you know, it says in this passage that uh, we're to make disciples of all nations. That doesn't mean that we ignore the rest of the world. Obviously, it's important that we are concerned about the rest of the world, that we pray, that we give, and, and that we go, even as Beth and Dave and others have done, as Brenda and Steve are doing right now, and certainly others. It's, it's part of our job. It's, it's part of our obligation. We are responsible for world missions individually, not just our community, but the world, and to play whatever role we can in that. And, and I think uh, most churches, especially the mainline churches of America today, don't take that seriously at all. You know, they have no concern. It's, it's very interesting that an organization as small as the Christian Missionary Alliance, those of you who have not studied the Alliance very much may not realize it's a very tiny organization uh, in the United States compared to the Southern Baptists or the Methodists or some of these other denominations. And yet, we have more missionaries than most of those denominations have. The Alliance has been noted for having more missionaries per capita than almost any other organization or church. And that's because the vision has been for world missions as it was proclaimed originally by A.B. Simpson. And I think that's what God expects, and that's what God wants. And I think the, the churches of America today, which have no vision for world mission, are, are completely blind towards what Christ has commanded the church to do. We might say, but the world is growing hostile to the gospel. More and more hostile, and, and that's really true, especially in our country. As you probably have noted, hostility towards the gospel is increasing. The scientific community, just as an example, a hundred years ago, well, maybe a little more than a hundred years ago, the scientific community was very uh, pro-Christianity. In fact, many of the great scientists were themselves at least professing Christians. But today, the scientific community is overwhelmingly hostile towards the Christian faith. In fact, many of them have gone on record as saying that fundamental Christians are the plague of this country and need to be eliminated. Uh, that we don't understand what life is about. We don't understand this, this evolutionary rush of humanity. And we've got this crutch, this make-believe uh, God that we, we depend upon. And we've invented heaven and we've invented hell and all these other things. 
And, and that's becoming a very pers uh, pervasive uh, process of thinking, not just among scientists, but amongst many so-called intellectuals um, in this country today. So how in the world can we carry out the Great Commission in an increasingly hostile world? Well, the same way Moses did. Egypt wasn't exactly a land beckoning him to come. Now, this was no Macedonian call here. Moses was going to a land that was as hostile as any land has ever been to the gospel, to the message that Moses was to deliver. Because Moses was bringing a message of a God the, is, the Egyptians did not believe in to free a people that the Egyptians wanted to hold in bondage. <laughs> That's about as hostile as it can get. And when you think about the fact that Pharaoh was himself deified in the minds of the people of Egypt and in his own mind, he was God. And you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell God, uh, this, this God Pharaoh, you've got to let these people go because a greater God is saying you've got to do this? <laughs> Moses has a very, very difficult task. And that's one of the reasons he is so reticent. As we continue through this passage, we find ultimately Moses really, the bottom line was Moses said no. Unfortunately, God just wouldn't take that for an answer. But we'll, we'll look at that as we, as we move, uh, move along here. As Moses had success, so we have success. And it's not because of our ability. It's because of God's ability. We can be effective in a hostile world as Moses was because God is the one who makes disciples, who baptizes them in the Spirit and brings them into the kingdom. We simply do the physical task that goes along with that. We're the agents of God's work, but it is God who does the work. The power of our witness comes from him. We might say, well, if that's true, why is it that Islam makes so many disciples? Well, Islam makes a lot of disciples partly because uh, the vast majority of converts to the Mohammedan faith are people already in the clutches of the devil, so why, what's so hard for them to believe another demonic uh, program? Plus, through history, Islam spread with a different sword. It wasn't the sword of the word. <laughs> it was the sword of steel. And you had two choices, convert or have your head cut off. And for most people, the choice was not too difficult to make. And so Islam has grown rapidly, but that doesn't make it genuine. Jesus said that if we go ahead and carry out the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so God was with Moses. It's interesting that often the eighth verse of the first chapter of Acts is considered to be kind of the key verse to the history of the church because, you know, Jesus is in the process of being taken up to heaven, the so-called ascension described in the first chapter. And uh, Jesus proclaimed that uh, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he doesn't say, you could be, you may be, or you should be my witnesses. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost or remotest part of the earth. And that's the job of God's people. Whether we want the job or not, Moses wasn't interested in the job. But God said, you're going to do it, Moses. Our success in God's kingdom, and, and this is 
something we need to bear in mind because we're living in an age in which there are all of these uh, mega church programs of how to grow big churches and how to have big numbers to understand that God's program is not based on numbers. God isn't up there with a big ledger saying, aha, this church, I'm going to bless it more because 70 people came to know the Lord this month in that church. God is not in the numbers game. Our success in God's kingdom is not measured by the number of people that we win to Christ or who come to Christ through our influence, but our faithfulness in witnessing the truth by our words, by our lives, and through our prayer. God then brings the people into the kingdom that he so chooses to bring into the kingdom. According to his plan, Paul said, I plant the seed, Apollos waters the seed, but God gives the increase. And that's one of the reasons why prayer plays such a major role in the effectiveness in the church. If we don't pray, our, our program is just so much water on hard ground. It doesn't produce fruit. The effective church is the church that prays. Now, certainly some of us, and and probably all of us in this room at one time or another, have felt handicapped when it came to the attempting to witness to an unbeliever with our mouths. Because we think, how in the world can I make the gospel understandable to this this heathen? This heathen might be a lot smarter than we are. (laughs) And it might have a lot of answers that we don't have and you probably have run into a few at your door, especially selling watch tower and awake or something like that. And we may feel a little handicapped in dealing with them, but that's the way Moses felt. As we get a little bit further, he's going to say, but Lord, I can't speak, speak, speak so well. And, and this, I think, was a serious thing with him. I don't think he was inventing that. It was a real concern that he wouldn't be able to get up and speak powerfully before Israel and powerfully before Pharaoh. But it's really clear clear, as you study through Scripture that no one is eloquent enough to bring another person to Christ. You you can be a silver-tongued orator, as William Jennings Bryan was called in American history. You, you can be an Apollos, who supposedly was a man of, of great oratory ability, and yet never win anyone to Christ. Because conversion is the product of the Spirit of God, not of eloquence. What God wants of us is not eloquence, but obedience. Think of Paul. Now, we've heard that Paul has been accused of not being all that eloquent. But I don't know, as you read Romans and and the epistles and and so forth, Paul's pretty eloquent, seems to me. And yet, Paul, in his eloquence, spoke before Felix, governor. Did he become a Christian? Nope. Festus, governor. Did he become a Christian? Nope. Ananias, the chief priest, did he become a Christian? No. He, he witnessed before Herod Agrippa. Did he become a Christian? Well, he said, almost, you persuade me. Probably he spoke before Nero. Scripture doesn't say for sure, but he was taken to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. He had that authority and that right. Not an authority, but he had that right. Did Nero become a Christian? I think not. So obviously, it's not the eloquence that brings others to Christ. It's the power of God. Some of the disciples were doubtful. 
We read this even in the Great Commission passage. Moses is very doubtful in this whole thing as we study it. Lord, I can't do it. Lord, I won't do it, is really what it boils down to in the end. In the passage on the ascension given in the first chapter of Acts that I referred to before, as you read on after Jesus had said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, uh, the scripture tells us that the disciples say, uh, now, Lord, is it this time that you're going to bring the kingdom? They still thought he was going to bring a, a, a physical kingdom to this earth at that moment and kick out the Romans, which was the vision of the zealots all along. And of course, you remember one of the disciples was called Simon the Zealot. That was a political party in, uh, in Judah at that time. And, and it was a party of what we might call terrorists today who had their own idea of who ought to be in charge in the country. The, you know, even at this point, they've gone through the death, they've gone through the resurrection, they've been subjected to all Jesus' teaching. He spent 40 days with them after his resurrection, and they're witnessing him going up to heaven, and still they don't get the whole program. They don't yet understand it. So if we feel a little feek and weeble, <laughs> as we might say sometimes, weak and feeble about it, uh, we're not alone in this. And God understands that. If we feel unable to witness in our strength, that is good. That is very good. Because if we feel capable in our own strength, we're probably in trouble. And probably very few are going to be impacted. It's kind of like today, if you can translate this, very, you know, the scripture talks about very few wealthy ever coming into the kingdom of God because they depend on their wealth. Very few of the, of the what we would call the rich and the famous, uh, the beautiful, uh, you know, the, the people who are the superstars, very few of them ever come to the kingdom. Why? Because they're dependent on their own ability. What they have been given is what they're depending upon. But we have to depend on Christ alone. And Paul understood this very well. And in writing to the Corinthians, he made, a, I think, a very important statement for us to be familiar with relative to this whole issue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Now, we could be insulted by this, <laughs> but I'm sure we won't be. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Do we fit in that? Not too wise, not too mighty, not too noble as far as the world is concerned. But God has chosen the foolish things, now Lord, <laughs> of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. That's one of the attacks being made against fundamental Christianity. I guess Marx put it most succinctly when he referred to Christianity uh, as the opiate of the people. You know, we, we, need to take, be, we need Christianity because we're too weak to face real life. 
We can't take the, the rigors of life, this, this evolutionary process which eliminates the weak and, 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 and produces the strong, you know, survival of the fittest. We can't handle it, so we create Christianity to give us something to lean on, a crutch, as uh, Lenin said. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the key to the whole thing. The program of God is to bring us to redemption to the honor and glory of his name. That we boast in him and in him alone. That we know that if God has used you or me to bring another person into the kingdom, that it isn't because we are wise or we are mighty or we are noble or we are beautiful or we are eloquent. It's because God has found a willing servant through whom he could touch another life. It's all done by the Spirit of God. We don't have to be salesmen. You know, with the latest sales pitch, try to convince people they ought to be Christians. Now, there is a, a, a systematic area of study within Christianity called apologetics. And there is, there's a great deal of value in apologetics, where you explain why Christianity is, is good and, and how it fits in, and, and try to deal with the intellectual aspects of Christianity. Uh, and obviously, since you're dealing with a God who is almighty and omniscient and the creator of the universe, we have nothing to be ashamed of. But apologetics in themselves will not win people to Christ. Even then, it's got to be the Spirit of God to do so. Justin, called the martyr, who lived in the second century, is called the evangelist in philosopher's robes. He was a man who pursued every form of philosophy available in those days and every religion he could find. He pursued it because he was looking for, quote, the truth. And one day he found the truth through a simple fisherman who told him about Jesus and, and he came to know Christ. And, and they spent the rest of his life as an apologist, trying to show how intellectually Christianity was valid. And uh, he even wrote to the emperor of the Roman Empire to try to explain how Christianity was real. Any person, though, who was won to Christ through his writings or his ministry came by the same route all the rest of us have come, the work of the Spirit of God alone, not through Justin's eloquence or his great knowledge. And so we all ought to feel just as capable if we're willing to be obedient. God has chosen us unwise as we are, weak as we are, foolish as we are sometimes, despised as we are often, so that we can only boast in him when his kingdom is advanced through our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says that because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Paul's just talked about being lifted up to paradise and being given visions of, of eternity. And to keep from 
him, him from exalting himself, he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Word of God is an enigma to the unconverted. To the unconverted intellectual, what God says makes no sense at all. <laughs> Out of our weakness comes strength. No, 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 no. If you want to be strong, you've got to make yourself strong. You've got to have power. You've got to become mighty. But God says those who humble him themselves, he will raise up. Out of our weakness will come strength. All this relates directly to Moses here. Moses feels tremendously weak. Moses feels unable. He's done nothing intellectually stimulating for 40 years, pushing sheep through the wilderness. And he feels totally out of touch with everything. And how could he stand before the mightiest prince of the day and convince that prince, you ought to let these people go? No, <laughs> it won't work. But he has to learn this truth that Paul learned that my grace is sufficient. Out of my weakness comes God's strength. When we realize we can't do it, God can do it. But if we think we can do it, God won't do it. Because he doesn't want us to boast in our own strength and ability. Oh, what a preacher am I. Oh, what an eloquent person am I. What a brilliant witness am I. <laughs> Forget it. And of course, that's why many people raise up quick followings and lose quick followings because the followers are mesmerized by the person's ability and have never been transformed, have never been converted, have never become true children of the king. Jesus has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. It means wherever we go and whatever we do, he's with us, even to the end of the age. And he made it very clear to Moses, I'm going to be with you, Moses, all the way to Egypt, in Egypt, and leading the people out of Egypt, back to this mountain, Mount Horeb, I will be with you. We read in verse 18 of this third chapter of Exodus that God had said to Moses that the elders of Israel will believe you and they will go with you to Pharaoh. But Moses acts like he didn't even hear this as we read on in the passage and into the next chapter. It's as if God had never said that. You know, he's, he's convinced they will never believe him. He wasn't too effective the first time, you remember. In the, the passage that follows verse 18 through verse 22, I won't reread the whole passage again, but as, as you read through this passage, we, we see that Moses is given an unusually detailed outline of what God is going to do and what he ex expects Moses to do. And think about it for a minute. How would you like it if God said, now I want you to do this, and this is what's going to happen. Point A, point B, point C, point D, point E. 
we'd say great. Well, Moses doesn't quite say great here. He's being told exactly what to do. God's not sending him off on some nebulous task. He knows Egypt. He knows Egypt very well. He spent 40 years there as a prince in the land. So he's not going to some unknown place. You know, he's not being sent like Jonah was off to Assyria, where he'd never been. All he knew that the Assyrians were hated. Being sent to a land that he knows, to a people that are his, with a promise that they will believe you and that I am with you as you make this journey. Um, what, what Moses thought about these prophetic words, we're not told here in this passage. We can only infer that they didn't really find a home in his heart at first. He probably thought that they were amazing words and, and somewhat gratifying you know, because the Lord says, I'm going to smite the Egyptians with great signs and wonders. Good, Moses probably thought, to the extent that he believed it. They need to be smitten. And then he promised that Israel would gain favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. That had to be a little bit hard to believe because he knew they were hated people and oppressed people, slaves in the land, and they're going to gain favor. And then he, he was told Israel will plunder the Egyptians. <laughs> oh, really? That must have been difficult. Well, the scripture teaches us in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Moses is learning a very strong lesson in faith here, but he hasn't got it together yet. As you look at this promise and try to put yourself in Moses' sandals, or bare feet actually at this time because he was told to remove his sandals, this sounds like a fairy story, like a wishful thought, <laughs> kind of a pipe dream on the part of an Israeli refugee from Egypt. Well, let's turn to the fourth chapter of Exodus and uh, see what happens. Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me? Now, God has already said they will. <laughs> what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. Then notice the end of that verse. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. <laughs> sure. So he stretched out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Notice how God keeps restating who he is and who he is to Israel. Yahweh, the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Over and over again. Verse 6, And the Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again. And when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And it shall come about that if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But it shall be that if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground 
The water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God is promised. God is explained. God is prophesied. And Moses still has doubts and fears. So if that happens to you, you have pretty impressive company. He was not openly refusing at this point to do God's will. But he is really strongly expressing his doubt to the Lord that Israel will really listen to him and that he could possibly impress Pharaoh. And I think, even before he opens his mouth to make it clear, in his heart, he's saying, no, Lord, no, Lord. <laughs> There's got to be someone else for this job. I think he's saying to the Lord, at first, just in his heart, please choose someone else or give me such overwhelming evidence that I will believe you without a doubt. Well, this is not a character flaw in Moses. It's a demonstration of really how little he knew of God. And this is a very important illustration to us of how important it is to study God's word, to fellowship with God's people, to become a person of prayer. Because without these things, we don't know God well either. And we can't do what he asks us to do because we don't believe him. In Romans 10, 17, we read that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how do we get faith? By the word. That's why we need it. That's why we need to study it. That's why we need to hear it preached. That's why we need to hear it sung and to sing it. Because without it, we don't have faith. We can't have faith. Moses had little knowledge of God and almost no experience with him before this burning bush. And so we can understand his doubt and his fear. You can't have faith in that which you don't know. Interestingly and importantly enough, one of God's attributes is long-suffering. God is patient. God is very patient. And as you read through this passage, you get a sense of God's patience. <clears throat> and if we're fair and honest in analyzing our own lives, we recognize how patient God has been with us. Day after day, year after year. He patiently puts up with our doubts, our fears, sometimes our blatant disobedience. But if we exhibit rebellion, or if we do as Moses does here, he's not rebellious, but he continues to persist in resisting what God is asking him to do to seemingly refuse to accept faith or his call on faith. When this happens, God will at that point blow the whistle. God is long-suffering towards us. But there's a point at which God says, that's enough. It's a good thing. And as we'll see in Moses' case, it's really a good thing for Moses that God blew the whistle on him. But in his patience, God goes on. He says, okay, Moses, what's in your hand? Well, Moses is probably not thinking about what's in his hand. He's got many other things on his mind right now. So he probably has to stop and look. Uh, it's a staff, Lord. <laughs> God knew what was in his hand. So why does God ask Moses, what's in your hand? Well, he does so for the very reason that he does what he does in our lives. He wanted Moses to be a participant in what God was about to do. 
by saying, it's a staff, Lord. There's a connection here. And Moses is connected with what God is about to do. And so Moses wanted overwhelming proof. God said, okay, I'm going to give it to you. Throw the stick on the ground. And it's interesting, Moses obeys. He could have said, what for, Lord? <laughs> I don't want a Lord. I'll fall over, Lord. He threw the stick on the ground. Now, I don't know that he had abs, you know, he had any premonition at all of what this all meant. Why should I throw it on the ground? Maybe he doesn't want me leaning on it. I don't know. So he throws the staff on the ground, and Moses is absolutely surprised, dismayed, and terrified at what happens. The stick becomes serpent. Now, Moses has been wandering in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. He knows what serpents are all about. He's seen many of them. He knows all the varieties that live along there, around there. And he knew this was not a friendly one. And this is evidence from the fact that it says he fled from it. I mean, he was a, he was a man who, who, who guarded sheep. He took care of them. He was used to the wilderness. He wasn't just one of these people who sees a snake and says, oh, flies away. He fled because that was a dangerous animal. He knew it was a venomous snake. And so he fled from the snake. Now, God's purpose is to build strength of character in his people. And one of the ways of building strength of character is to require his people to do hard things. Now, it wasn't so hard to throw the staff down, but to pick it back up again is a totally different story. Now, sometimes we can just fly over this real quickly. But when you think about the fact that he is being asked by God to reach down and grab the tail of this thing. And it's not smiling at him. You know? It's not doing anything very friendly. It's a dangerous animal. And yet God is asking him to pick it up. Now this is a measure of Moses' faith up to this point. Moses has already realized one thing. God said, throw it down. I threw it down. Now God is asking me to pick it up. If he's telling me I'm going to go over the, uh, to, to Egypt and deliver these people, he's probably not going to have this thing kill me. But it's still a major leap of faith here to pick this creature up by its tail. This would be a foolish thing to do under normal circumstances. It's not advised. And so he was putting his life on the line. I mean, you have to think about this for a minute. He was putting his life on the line. There was no mercy air service here. You know, there, there was no way he would survive if this thing bit him. He'd be dead. So he's literally putting his life on the line to reach down and grab this creature. But God's voice had authority in it. God instilled in him a measure of faith at, to this point. And so the quantum leap of faith is occurring. It is not a big enough leap of faith, however, for him to say, okay, God, after that, anything you want, I'll do. No. As we're going to see, he's ultimately going to say to God, no, I don't want to do the job. We haven't got to that point yet. But it's a big leap of faith. Now, I don't think he did this with any joy. I think he was very hesitant because everything in his being said, this is stupid. 
He had been taught. He knew by experience. His natural you know, flight instinct was there. He had to overpower all of that to grasp this thing's tail. But he did it. And suddenly he was holding a stick again. Benign staff. Same staff he'd thrown down before. Now, if you want to know how far people will go to try to explain away everything God does. There are some who, in all seriousness, have set forth the concept that there are snakes that live in the Sinai, which if you take them by the tail and whirl them around, they become stiff as a board. <laughs> and you can carry these things around. And this supposedly explains what happens when Moses does this before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. This is presented in a scholarly work as a serious possibility. <laughs> probability, probably in the author's mind. I mean, people who call themselves scientists will go to all kinds of extremes to show how what the Bible talks about couldn't possibly be a miracle. Because that would require a God who actually reached down and did things in people's lives, and, and we don't want that, of course. Because then we might be responsible to him and perish that thought. Then we can't live the way we want to live. This was a miracle. Moses had seen chicanery. He had seen sleight of hand. He'd lived in Egypt for 40 years. He knew a lot about it. This was the real thing. <laughs> he had seen it himself. He had experienced it himself. Now, his faith had been given a powerful shot of adrenaline here. And I'm sure he was extremely thankful that this thing was a stick again. I'm sure he looked at it for a little while, you know, just to make sure. But God told Moses that this miracle is going to convince many doubting Israelites that I have really sent you. So when they see this, they're going to say, oh, it's got to be God. How else could this happen? It's impossible otherwise. But you know what God says to Moses? Yeah, there, there may be some, though, who won't even believe this. So, since there might be others who won't believe this, I'll give you a, another, even more inexplicable sign. Moses, be Napoleon. Stick your hand in there. Pull your hand out. Totally leprous. White as snow. Advanced malignancy. Instantly over his entire hand. Now, leprosy is nothing to sneeze at. Leprosy in that world was a horrendous thing. Because for one thing, if you were a leper, you were socially ostracized. You were suddenly a hermit, whether you wanted to be one or not. And of course, leprosy was feared. It was considered to be a curse of the gods. Leprosy was a slow, agonizing, psychologically destructive way to die. It was a frightful thing for Moses to pull his hand out and have it covered with this normally totally incurable disease. And I think God let him hold it there for a minute and think about it for a while and let it penetrate deep into his soul what's gone on here and then to put his hand back in again and pull it out absolutely whole. A miracle. An absolute miracle. Moses would be able to show the people, look people, it's not powder over my arm here. It's the real thing. Whole again. How could they explain that? 
there would be no explanation for that. This was a witness. In the scripture here where it says, my glasses on, I can find it here. In verse 8, and it shall come about that, this is Exodus 4, 8. They will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign. The Hebrew word there is literally voice. The voice, the cry of the first witness. I think even looking at that passage helps us to understand how it can be that our lives are as strong a witness as our words. Because these deeds were voices crying out, testifying to God. And so would these actions be. A voice, a testimony, a witness to whom God is. The reality of his power and the authenticity of Moses' mission. God is never left without a witness. Through the marvels of creation, through the signs and wonders that he has performed down through the centuries, more powerfully than that, through the written and spoken word, God has given witness to all mankind of his genuine care for the world and that he alone is God. I know it's time to quit, but let me just quickly read a verse that you certainly probably know very well from the first chapter of Acts. I, I'm sorry, Romans, where God is speaking through Paul, and Paul is talking about the wrath of God revealed from heaven against ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, verse 18. Because that which is known about God is what? Evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Then verse 24, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. We say, how can the heathen be lost if they have never heard the preaching of the gospel? Because there is a witness in the created world. And that witness is seen as expressed in Ecclesiastes where the writer talks about God has set eternity in their hearts and all over the world, everybody, every, every nation, every people is a religious people. They may not know the true God, but they worship something or someone. Some greater power, some greater force than they. Israel would be drawn to Yahweh by the witness of God's word and of his power as seen in these signs. Then lastly, the healing. The healing of Moses' hand would be a sign to them that God was about to heal Israel to remove them out of this socially psychologi social psychological leprosy of slavery and restore them to wholeness by bringing them to the, to the Holy Land, the Promised Land, and giving them their own land so that they could be a people and hold their heads high and serve the living God. That's what God wants. Well, we'll move on from there next week.